passages, and because it's one of my favorite passages, my poor family has heard, had to hear me use Psalm 1 several dozen times <laughs> through the years. But maybe they'll get it one of these days. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure they understand it by now. But uh, I think I, based on some notes I saw, I think I studied this with you about 18 or 17 years ago. I don't remember why I was here, but I, I've got Fountainhead down for uh, April the something or other in 2002. So you may, all, you may remember everything I said about it, but I sort of doubt it. But Psalm 1 is, is a fabulous uh, piece of scripture. It answers the question that a lot of people ask, and that is, how can I be happy? Now, I don't know that that's the, the sole purpose of the psalm. I don't think it is. There are a lot of lessons in Psalm 1. But if you go to Walmart or somewhere like that, and, and at least last time I looked, you look in the book section where they have all these books about this, that, and the other. You can find all kinds of books about how to be happy. You can find all kinds of things on the Internet, how to be happy. And you can find a list of rules. You can find a list of this, that, and the other. This psalm tells us how to be genuinely happy. Without going into a lot of fancy stuff, it just has a very simple, plain recipe, if you want to call it, for how to be happy. When you see the word blessed in the Bible, that's really what it's talking about. And I always like to point out when you talk about happy in the scriptures, you're not necessarily talking about jumping up and down and hooping and hollering and turning flips and all that kind of thing, happy. Uh, but you're, you're talking about satisfied. You're talking about being contented. You're talking about enjoying life and, and what life has to offer and what God in life has to offer. That's what real happiness is. And so in the psalm, you've got happiness approached in two ways. What not to do to be happy and what to do to be happy and the consequences either way. And so to me, this psalm is, is a favorite because it's very simple. <laughs> It, it's laid out almost in outline form, and that makes it easy to understand. Um, I don't know how many of you would claim, as I do, that I'm sort of a simple person anyway, and I like something that's just easy to understand. And so this psalm does that. Now, uh, verses 1 and 2, uh, or verse 1 actually, uh, is, is the what not to do. And so it starts out saying blessed. In other words, happy is the person or blessed is the person who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Now, this is an interesting verse because I don't know whether this was by God's design or whether it just happens to be this way when God said what he wanted said in the psalm. But it's interesting because verse 1 shows what turns out to be a progression of sin. And so if you want to be happy, the, the bottom line is stay away from sin and those who are involved in sin, or as, as far as listening to them. Now look at the three things it says about that in this first verse. First of all, blessed is the man that, that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Now, when I say a progression, I see a natural progression in this verse. 
Let's say you go to Portland tomorrow and you're walking along on the street and somebody comes up and uh, tries to sell you something or tries to tell you about something or whatever. As you walk along, you can do one of two things. You can either listen to what the person has to say or you can say, well, I'm like I do. <laughs> I'm not interested. Now, if you listen to what they say, you may walk along for a little while paying attention. You're, you're listening to their counsel, that is, to their advice. You're listening to what they have to say. Now, what do you do if you get sort of interested? Look at the next part. Nor stands in the path of sinners. If you get interested in what this person's telling you as you walk along, what do you just naturally do? You probably stop and you stand there and you talk about it a little while. And if you get really interested, what do you do then? You go over and you say, well, you know, let's go over and sit down. I, I really want to know more about this. Now, I think, I think this verse shows that progression. We're not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. That is, don't even pay any attention to what the ungodly tries to sell you. Ungodly, by the way, and there are three words here, ungodly, sinners, and scornful. And I think they are degrees as well. The ungodly are basically people who, they just don't pay any attention to God. They don't, they don't care anything about Him. They're not necessarily against Him. They're just not for him. Now, of course, Jesus says, if you're not with me, with me, you're against me. But, but they think that, you know, I'm just neutral. I'm, I'm not religious. That, that can characterize sometimes the ungodly. But then the next step is sinners. There are some people who deliberately set out to do what they want to do, knowing that it's against God's will. They, they know something about God. They, they've heard him. They've listened to him a little bit. But they're going to do what they want to do anyhow. And then the scornful are those who just outright rail and ridicule God. We got a lot of folks around these days like this. I remember, and this is a long time ago, back in the 70s, uh, when Madeline Murray O'Hare, now you younger people may have never heard of her. She was a, she was a world famous atheist at the time, or claimed to be at least. And she went around the world not just our country, went around the world declaring there is no God. And she and, and this fellow named Bob Harrington, who billed himself as the chaplain of Bourbon Street at the time, uh, he was some kind of a preacher. They had this debate in Huntsville, Alabama, and I went. And I remember one of the unique things about that debate was, well, first of all, it seemed to be sort of staged. I think both of them are sort of putting on a show. But uh, anyway, when, during one of her sessions in that debate, uh, she actually raised her fist and, and cursed God right there on the stage. And I've said a lot of times since that I think that's the only time in my life I really wouldn't have been surprised at all if God hadn't sent a bolt of lightning right then and just struck her dead and melted her on the spot. Now, I didn't expect him to do that, but I wouldn't have been surprised if he had the way she, she was scornful. So look at the progression in this. If you want to be happy, don't even listen to the, the pleas of the ungodly. Certainly don't stop and stand and begin to participate in the way of sinners. And by all means, don't sit down in the seat of the scornful. Don't go full speed ahead into what they're doing. 
So that's, that's what you don't do if you want to be happy. By the way, let me throw this in, and, and I hope I don't try to cram too much into this. Uh, there, there's some folks that say, well, I don't believe in anything. I don't believe we'll be doing anything negative. I don't think we ought to say anything negative. Well, we don't need to all the time. There's, there's too much positive in the Word of God and about God's way to, to be negative all the time. But you have to be negative sometimes. This psalm is an illustration of it. Here's what you don't do, the psalmist says. Before he gets into the really good stuff, he says, look, you've got to stay away from the advice of sinners and don't pay attention to the way of, of, of the scornful and the ungodly and don't participate with all that. Stay away from it. Don't do it. But those, uh, several of you are either are now or have been involved in farming. Farming cannot be carried on. In fact, hardly anything in life can be carried on without some negative stuff, especially to begin with. Uh, in, in farming, you've got to do a lot of negative things. You've got to do a lot of destructive things sometimes before you can do the positive. So it takes both. And this psalm has both of them. Okay, so here's what we don't do is uh, uh, walk in the counsel of the ungodly, stand in the path of sinners, sit in the seat of the scornful. All right, the person who, who follows that advice, what's he going to be like? His delight is in the law of the Lord. I like that word delight. Um, I don't know, maybe one reason is when, um, when I was growing up, uh, there was a little ice cream place in town called Dairy Delight. I've always liked ice cream. I can't eat much of it now, but I've always, I've, I, I like ice cream in the middle of winter, middle of summer. It doesn't matter. Ice cream is good anytime. That to me is, is one of the definitions of delight. It's something that you love. It's something that you, you know, no time is ever a bad time for a certain thing that you delight in. And so I always thought, well, you know, those little ice cream places that they named Dairy Delight, uh, and by the way, uh, I, I learned after using this example in a meeting a couple of years ago, I learned there's still a place in Fayetteville by the name of Dairy Delight. Well, delight is, is being uh, interested in something, having pleasure in something. Okay, the person who's going to be happy, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Now, that phrase is like praying. You know, we're to pray without ceasing. Well, we can't pray literally 24 hours a day every moment. It means to be in a prayerful attitude. It means to stay in touch with God so that as we, as we pray along, off and on, all through the day, whether silently or out loud or whatever it might be, uh, we're people who are constantly in touch with God. That's what it means to pray without ceasing. To delight in God's law day and night is that same thing. We can't, we, we can't study our Bibles every moment of every 24-hour period. It, it's physically impossible. But we have to have our delight in God's law. Do you make it a practice every day along the way? Everything you see, if you happen to have time to stop and think about it, do you make some kind of connection with what you see and what you experience and what you think about even? Do you make some kind of connection with, with God and His way and His will? For instance, 
we understand what it means sometimes. You're driving along some afternoon right after a rainstorm and you look up and there's a beautiful rainbow. Well, you have to stop and think that's a sign from God. In fact, that's the only actual physical sign we have anymore. God says, I put the bow in the clouds and that's, my, that's the sign of my promise. I won't ever destroy the world by water again. But when you see a rainbow, you stop a lot of times and you think about the significance of it and the fact that that's, God put that there and, and gave that to, to remind us of his promise. Well, we can do everything in life like that if we stay tuned in to God's will. If we delight in the law of the Lord to such an extent that everything we see and everywhere we go and everything we do, there, there's some kind of connection that we can make to either something the Bible teaches or to the principles of God or just God himself. I'm sure many of you uh, remember Brother Basil Overton. He was, the, he was the most effective person I ever saw at this idea. You didn't talk to him five minutes before he made some kind of connection between something that was going on and what the Bible teaches. He always, he always had a connection uh, with, with God and God's Word in everything around. And so one of the ways we can do that is, uh, let's say you're going down the road and uh, you see something ahead and you put your brakes on and you avoid a problem, maybe even an accident. Are you tuned in enough that you just automatically in your mind, if not, maybe whisper it out loud, thank you, Lord? Well, that's having our delight in God's will and God's law day and night. When you wake up in the morning, put your foot out on the floor. It might take a while to get it out there, but you get your foot out on the floor. Does it occur to you, thank you, Lord, that I'm able to get up? When you lie down at night, does it, does it ever occur to you, Lord, I thank you now for this time of rest? Well, that, that's the idea of, of delighting in the things of God day and night. So what's, what's that going to do for a person? When a person delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it, thinks about it, makes connections with it, makes connections with the Lord, when you do that day and night, what's it going to make you? What's going to be the result? Somebody says, well, you're going to be about half crazy. You know, there, there are people that accuse you of being a religious fanatic and you're about half nuts, if not completely. But here's what it will make you. Look at the next verse. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. I used to look at that, that sentence and I thought, I guess that means that the water carried the seed over and planted it and, you know, this acre and sprouted and finally there's a tree here by the river and the river planted it. That, that's not what it's talking about. It means the tree is beside the river of water. Down where I spent most of my growing up years, we lived up on, we lived up on a hill. And that hill had the nickname of Rocky Knob. And it, it was a genuine nickname because that hill was, I've, the way I've described it, was basically just one big, old, one big old pile of stone with just a little bit of soil sprinkled around on top of it. Just barely enough to grow grass. Of course, plenty to grow weeds, but barely enough to grow grass. And uh, maybe a tomato plant every now and then. But 
what would happen starting about this time of year? Now, it wouldn't be a year like this and where it was rained every day. But long, long in July, 1st of August, usually it would get dry and maybe go a couple of weeks without a drop of rain and so forth. Wouldn't have to go very long. What would happen is grass would start to turn brown, leaves would start to turn yellow and fall off trees. I mean, you know, just, just a short space of no rain because there was so little soil and, and it was rocky and everything would start dying. Well, I spent a lot of time down on the creek and on the river. You go down there, it didn't matter how long it had been since it rained, as long as the creek hadn't gone dry. The trees beside the, the creek and the trees on the river bank, they don't lose their leaves till it's time to lose their leaves. Why? Because they are planted or they are standing or sitting by the water supply. Now, the lesson here is, that if we meditate on God's law day and night because we delight in that law, we'll be like those trees down on the riverbank. It doesn't matter what's happening somewhere else. It doesn't matter how bad times get. It doesn't matter how, how uh, dried up the society around us gets. It doesn't matter about all these things. If we are delighting and meditating in God's law, we're like those trees down there by the river. We bear the fruit we're supposed to bear in the right season. And that, that's what this is talking about. And so it says that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. And what's, whatever he does shall prosper. Now that's, of course, within the confines of God's will. We, we only prosper within the, within the limits that he wants us individually to prosper and how we've obeyed and how we serve and how faithful we are, all those kind of things. But, but still, whatever we do, if this is the kind of life we live, it's going to prosper. It's going to be worthwhile. It's going to bring forth fruit at the right time that is in its season. Now, look at the other side of the picture. The person who does walk in the counsel of the ungodly and stand in the way of sinners and sit in the seat of the scornful and does not delight in the law of the Lord and does not meditate on God's law day and night. What's he going to be like? Well, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Now, there, there are a number of passages that we could, could use as uh, I guess you'd say partners to this. Let me go back to one though before I get into verse four that I forgot. In Romans seven and verse 22, the only time, at least in the King James Version, it's the only time that the word delight appears in the New Testament. Strangely enough, there are about a hundred occurrences uh, of the word delight in the Old Testament, just like here in our first Psalm. But in Romans 7, in verse 22, Paul says, For I delight in the law of God according to the inner man. Our real delight is inward. Our real delight is spiritual. And so Paul says, I delight in the law of God. wonder where he got that idea. Well, <laughs> he knew something about the Old Testament, of course, in, in addition to being inspired. But uh, he says, I delight in the law of the Lord according to the inward man. So this idea of delighting in, in God's law, God's way, in other words, God's will, delighting in that is, is 
what we're supposed to be involved in. Okay, so uh, what about the ungodly? What about those who don't do that? Well, they're not so. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Now, people in the first century, as well as people in Old Testament times, most everybody clearly understood what this is talking about. It might be a little fuzzier for some of us. We understand about the tree by the, by the water supply, but uh, the, the chaff which the wind drives away. You read a number of times in the Old Testament and maybe some reference to it in the New Testament about threshing. They obviously didn't have combines and tractors and all those kind of things. Uh, they, they, they threshed wheat or oats or barley the hard way. When they would, they would go out and, and with, a, with a sickle or a scythe, they would they'd grab a, a handful or if they could, an arm, load, a arm full of, of stalks and cut it off. And, and they would eventually carry those. They'd sometimes tie them into sheaves. You know, we sing that song or used to, bringing in the sheaves. Well, you know, it's bringing in bundles of, of stalks of grain. Well, anyway, they would carry it to a threshing floor. And you find quite a few references to threshing floors in the Old Testament. A threshing floor was either uh, a, a big flat rock somewhere, or if they didn't have a big flat rock, uh, it might just be a place where they had uh, trampled the dirt down real tight, you know, packed it, and, and it'd, be, it'd be clean. And so they would scatter all, this, uh, all these sheaves or all these bundles of uh, grains, uh, stalks of grain out on this hard place, and either people or animals would tromp around on it. And what they're doing is separating the grains out of the head and, and the chaff and out of the stalk and all that. And so when they got ready, when they got it all trampled down, they would wait for a wind to blow. And they would, they would go then with what we would call either a scoop or a big pitchfork. And as the wind would blow, they would scoop down in that and throw it up in the air and the wind would blow the chaff, the little, the little uh, thin coating on the grains. The wind would blow the chaff away. The grains being heavier would fall back down. Now they would have already used the winnowing fork to, put, to, lift, to lift the straw out. So this idea of, of the grain being heavy and valuable and the chaff being of no benefit, they use that idea to, to thresh their wheat or their barley or whatever. And so the psalmist is using that idea. The ungodly are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Look at Matthew chapter 3 just a minute. And Jesus uses this very thing as a means of telling us what's going to happen uh, sometime. In verse 11 of Matthew 3, Jesus says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me, uh, I said Jesus, John, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose uh, sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, Sometimes people look at that and they think those are the same thing, being baptized with the Holy Spirit and being baptized with fire. Now, the apostles on the day of Pentecost were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And most people think Cornelius' household, the same thing. 
But that's the only two occurrences you've got of it. And uh, so some people today will look at this and say, well, you know, I, I, want the, I want the fire of the Holy Spirit to come and baptize me. That's not what John's talking about. Look at verse 12. He's talking about two different baptisms. One of them has already occurred and served its purpose and over with, and the other hasn't happened yet. He says his winnowing fan is in his hand. That's that pitchfork I was talking about, that scoop. Jesus is someday going to have a winnowing fan in his hand and he will thoroughly cleanse out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There's you the, the end, the, the judgment day description of the chaff blowing away uh, because the wind drives it. In the day of judgment, the chaff, that is the ungodly, the scornful, the sinners, those who've not been uh, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. In the day of judgment, all of, that, all of this undesirable stuff that people hadn't taken care of, the, the ones who haven't taken care of it, it's, it's as if they're going to be piled up and burned like the chaff at threshing time. But Jesus says, uh, gather his wheat into the barn. So in, in the day of judgment, the righteous will be gathered in and will enjoy eternity with God. The unrighteous will be burned with this unquenchable.